Hello, I'm James Woodcock of PixelRefresh.com and this is Game and Gadget number 34 of the Game and Gadget podcast. So we're cracking for a few numbers now. We're recording these probably every few weeks, maybe a month tops. Uh, we did start on that, maybe the idea of a bi-weekly basis, but you'd be surprised, ladies and gentlemen, how much work's involved. The recording is generally the easy bit. We just talk and it's a lot of fun and we probably talk a lot after a hit stop the stop record button as well. Uh, I try and make it sure that the end of conversation stuff you don't get to hear isn't the best bits, but sometimes that happens, but also then becomes part of the next podcast usually. So first of all, let me in, uh, introduce our guest. We have Aaron Fothergill, who's been a regular on the Game & Gadget podcast. Thanks for joining us again, Hello. Aaron. We have Cole from Retro32.com, who was on the last podcast. Thanks for coming back again, Carl. No worries. Thank you for having me. And also on his second return, we have Martin Mulrooney, who was helping Tony Rowena with the book Revolution, the quest for game development gr greatness. I'll get that right in a minute. <laughs> the quest for game development greatness. Thanks for joining again, Martin. Yeah, no worries. It's a mouthful, that book title, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's just been a long day at work and it's just hard to put my words together today. But we will move beyond that and get straight into the goodness of Carl. BBS. Now, I have to confess, uh, that's not meant to rhyme, that I have not really had hands-on experience with BBS. Aaron may have had some experience. Yes, he's yep. nodding away. That's always a good sign. I've seen it. I've seen screenshots of it. I've been to your website today where you have like, uh, you can do it in a browser format, so I could see what it was all about. But Carl, do you want to give us a little introduction for those who haven't experienced the days of it? What is it all about? So yeah, like like I think a lot of people, well, my kind of age, is that back in the day, our parents couldn't afford um, the internet, nor did they want it. It was this big scary thing. So um, unfortunately, that side of my kind of Amiga experience was um, was kind of cut well short before it even started. So um, it was something that my involvement in the um, in kind of the demo scene and that kind of thing exposed me to, to the BBS. Um, and it wasn't really something that I've got much experience with. Um, but luckily, I mean, one of the, the guys that works with me um, in retro 32, Darren or fusion was especially back in the day was very much um, kind of part of that scene. And with me having quite a deep technical knowledge of, of networks and internet and how, websites and lots of other things work we decided to have a have a crack at it and um and yeah the result was one of the the more recent amiga only uh bbs's to kind of come out of essentially what was kind of like an idea that, that we kind of forged in lockdown and um and yeah and that's it and it's kind of it's kind of grown from strength to strength retro 32's always had quite a big repository of kind of files and kind of guides and lots of other kind of goodies that, that I found hard to find. So I thought, well, let's just share it. So it was kind of like that that next kind of step to think, right, well, if we can if we can share this stuff in a modern way, then let's share stuff like like it used to happen back in the day. And I'd say the reception's been really good. We've uh, we've we've kind of we're, we're growing really fast, especially now that I've just introduced the um, the web client as well. So it kind of takes the um, takes the the scary part kind of away from it having to install like a telnet client or try and teach people how to use telnet and things like that i mean obviously i'll do guides and, and things on how to do it anyway uh, but yeah the introduction of the telnet client uh, the web client really saw kind of numbers rocket i think we're at what was it i checked this morning we're at 267 users um and i say the site went well the bbs went live um in march of last year so but I say we've had um i don't know if any of you are aware of uh, of a, a kind of, well, uh, quite a well-known um, guy in the um, demo scene in the Amiga Q uh, community called Hoffman. So uh, yeah, I mean he's been doing his um, uh, his streams called the Twitch Elite, essentially where he's a modern-day take on cracking old Amiga games, which is fantastic. And the BBS has kind of been the home of the TTE. So not only is he kind of cracking old games using obviously some modern techniques, but also going back to the action replay, all of the releases then that come from it are all released on the BBS, which is really nice. So it's kind of like a heart back for when the days where people were cracking kind of ferociously because that was half of the Amiga scene. 
and now they and obviously distributed using the BBS, and now we've kind of gone back to it again. So all of his releases and and all of the code and everything like that, all of the assets and resources for it are now only released um, on the, the the TT area of the BBS, which is really good. And um, I said, what we've also tried to do is just to really give it like a real Amiga flavor. I mean, it's based on Mystic BBS, which essentially is a DOS BBS. Uh, but Fusion, who's an ASCII artist himself, has worked really hard uh, on kind of giving it that Topaz look and, and really make it shine on an Amiga. And it's kind of grown from strength to strength. And I say we've done, we did things like we we re-released the theme for like Christmas and stuff like that. And we're now we're now kind of expanding it further to give it that real like nostalgic flavour. And it's it's kind of kicking off. And we're kind of like trying to encourage other kind of people from the demo scene and and anybody from the retro scene to kind of make it like a home for releasing music and and um, another kind of like assets that. That kind of because they're so widely available and easy to to kind of consume these days. Just adding that kind of nostalgic method of obtaining them in my eyes, it kind of gives it back that sheen. Rather than just going to a website, clicking download or clicking a Facebook link, you kind of say, well, if you want this, you've got to access it from the BBS. And I say, and it is a real nice, authentic BBS experience. Obviously, it's not hosted on on kind of real hardware. It's actually sat behind me in the corner there. But as I say, it gives you it's it's a real nice like nostalgia, especially when you're accessing it from real hardware. Um and especially if you're using something like a plip box, it's really slow and like it it really does like I'm like thinking, oh, this would take seconds if I was downloading it from like a Windows client, but some of these things like take a minute to pull from my Amiga four thousand with a plip on it. And I'm like, I like this. I like I like sitting here having to wait for it like back in the day. If only if only it dialed up really. If only it dialed up. That's let's say it's a bit of a like a full yep. Yorkshireman set uh, a sketch. A yep. minute, you lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, Aaron, back in the day, then how would you have utilised something like this to put in some kind of context with this modern usage? Well, when when I was actually doing Amiga programming, um, that's the first time. I actually actually started to use anything like BBS and, and you know sort of stuff, but but it was rare because back then there was a bit of a, a country divide thing. Uh, in the UK, we tended more to have more be more like to have a hard drive and know a guy down the street or somewhere else in town who you you pop round and you'd have a room wall to wall with discs, and they'd all be cracked versions. And basically, what do you want? It's it's here, you know. That was that was sort of a sneakerware BBS basically for the data side of it, and um, and the actual getting hold of a modem and stuff in the UK because the UK was so expensive to get online. Um, and this is this is back to the back, back to the same problem because you you have to pay per minute for your for your access to uh, online services because because that's the way it, it was back then. A guy I worked with went on hadn't taken any vacation at work and he got two weeks off and he went online for two weeks without realizing his mum's bill was being clocked up every minute Oh dear! because he didn't know it was per minute <laughs> and it cost him more than actually going to the bahamas <laughs> for a week or so you know and also the thing is the and also just on that one as well is that Back in those days, there was no mobile phone. So if you're in a family and you've got one telephone line, yeah. essentially at that point, nobody else can get called. So yeah. people would pick up the phone and be like, oh, my God, what is that? And then not only would it cut your transfer, you've dismissed someone else because they can't get all. Oh, oh, Nan's tried to ring. She couldn't ring the other night to yeah. tell me the, the news because you're on the Internet. So it's funny. I was yeah. always a grandma, isn't it? Because yeah. I remember my <laughs> first also- them, it was exactly the same scenario because they got into this regular pattern of ringing maybe like 6 or 7 p.m. And then yeah. I got my dial-up modem. I'd dial up and it would do two hours before it would cut you off and then you'd have to dial up again. And she was complaining so much that uh, my mum's name is Irene. She'll go, Irene, I, I can't never get through anymore. What's going on? What's, I keep getting engaged, engaged. And yeah, as you also say, if you pick up the phone on the same household, on an, on another phone, because it's all showing the same, like, you get all the lovely dial-up modem sounds. 
the data transmission sounds as it's occurring. And yeah, then it would probably cut you off as well. It messes up. It messes up your yep. transfer. Yeah. Yeah. And and we only just got to the stage with with the Amiga and the ST. We got to the stage where we didn't. We weren't sharing the family TV for the computer at least by that point. So you know, basically, if you had a computer kid in your house, he was like a resource hog for every single bit of technology in the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and also going back to that, we had. Obviously, I, I wasn't kind of exposed to anybody kind of with the, the wall of um, Amiga games, but we used to have a guy that at the... Um, so I lived back in Peterborough then, and it was a guy on the market stall who was selling kind of like public domain discs, but then if you said to him, oh, what, what else have you got? And he'd, he'd kind of look around, he'd go, come and have a look, and then he'd literally slide out a tray from underneath the table, and it yeah. would literally be like where, 500 where? copies, and then he'd go, right, and here's a list, take it away if you want anything, come and see me next week. So, mm. yeah, let's say piracy was prolific. But also, so I did, I did spend all of my pocket money on boxed games as well. So I was no certainly no stranger to that. And um, public domain discs at the local, I think the, the computer store was Devals in Peterborough, um, which is actually still there today. Um, but yeah, they had a massive Amiga and uh, and PD disc library on their counter as well. So yeah, and where where I was in Devon, um, the guy on the market stall just had all the where's stuff out on display um because because the local police were absolutely bloody useless i i managed to at least get my titles pulled off his stall by harassing him enough with the police but the police said oh it's a civil matter and it's not it's a criminal matter it was at the time anyway technically it was a criminal matter but they wouldn't do anything unless he was committing fraud and he had somewhere along these are these are backup copies is the usual disclaimer everyone had and it was like it was really disheartening because it was like the, the, the thing is the piracy was a natural thing, especially around with the Amiga and, and the ST. Uh, by that point, it, it became a, a normal deal, and and um, there, were, there were good good sides of it, but the bad side, if you were a smaller developer, was horrific because it's like if you're EA, you can afford to have ninety percent of your you know customer base get something for free whereas 10 percent of them actually paying for it because that the numbers involved are huge if you're a little dev the numbers involved are basically even if like you know just one in one in ten of those people bought the game you'd be difference between bankruptcy and actually making a profit yeah and and that was the, the problem we had it was it was like yeah we're just about selling enough to scrape by but most of the people playing our game are playing pirated versions. Yeah. And we're getting all the help calls from them as well. Oh. So, so we did have to... <laughs> Double yeah. blow. We did have to start putting yeah. stuff in to make life difficult for them, you know, and, unless they had a legit copy. What, was that like something like copy protection blocks or dongles, like physical protection? No, no. Or... no just, just being absolutely mean as possible. We, we had um, a book code, which is really basic, sort of, if, if you've got the manual, you play the game, but it doesn't do it immediately. It waits until you're 10 levels in and then asks you for a certain couple of words from the manual. You know, page such and such, line such and such, words. No problem. Very easy if you've got the manual. If someone's cracked the game, they don't know. When, 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 typically, what like the guys doing the cracking at the time would play the game very quickly to test if, they, if it, this crack worked or not. And initially, it would look like it worked. I mean, Jet Strike, for instance... You can play the game right up to level 10, which is by the point you're, you're seriously starting to get dedicated. To get, just to get to level 10 on that game was fairly challenging. So for all intents and purposes, it looks like any sort of level of cracking has worked. So, right, we'll release that, no problem, you know. And then, you know, there's Johnny Nomate playing his cracked version and everything, gets to level 10, the, the book, code, book code thing comes up. Uh, oh, no, but it's cracked, so I don't have to worry, you know. And it's, it's, it doesn't do anything. Until you get to level 15. At level 15, as soon as you're above a certain altitude, it will go, die, you pirate bastard, lock your controls and have you flow straight into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny you say that, because one of, one of my... One, obviously, I've always been heavily into kind of aircraft and stuff like that as a kid. But Jet Strike was one of my most favourite games as a kid. But again... It was, unfortunately, it was a copy disc, but yeah. I could only play it up to the end of the first disc, and then it would lock myself out. Yeah. But but now I do have 
two original, two physical copies. They've got it on CD32 and boxed as well. So right. but, there's, a, there's, a, there's a specific problem with the CD32 version, though, which is really annoying because the original version that was released through Rasputin on the Amiga had a bug around level 100 or something, which was a fatal bug because they took the gold disc. We were, we were trucking out gold discs after gold discs to get it done. The, the process with uh, Amiga, with Commodore at the time was really hilarious in stuff going backwards and forwards. And they published based on the last but one gold disc. So it was the wrong version. End result being one of the fatal bugs that we'd found and fixed wasn't in wasn't fixed in the release version. So you can't actually get beyond a certain point. So the best version is the, the Grand Slam gold, uh, Grand Slam gold compilation that's got uh, Jet Strike, Nick Faldo's Golf, and another game or something on it, which has the fixed version. God, just trying to. That's called Chex's collection. <laughs> I'm just going to have to have a look. Yeah, and and I've got a knockoff copy of that because when I went on eBay to try and buy, because we never got copies of our own games half the time, which was really annoying. And I managed to get. Uh, I, I went back on when, when eBay first started going on. I had a bit of a binge of buying things off eBay. I found a copy of the Grand Slam Gold version on eBay. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll have that. And I got it. And it's, this is so obviously a knockoff copy. <laughs> but hey, you know, CD32 version, there's no copy protection because it was practically impossible at the time. It wasn't wasn't financially possible to do quick knockoffs until later on, you know, because the disc, disc burning was so expensive at the time. Here's a question then. So, well, Jet Strike. I played the absolute death, obviously, the only the first disc. And once, when I was flying, I got abducted by aliens, and then I got their <laughs> yeah. ship. And I've, I was asking this question not that long ago on Facebook to say, does anybody know what... Because this is something that I'd love to recreate. Does anybody know what kind of... what Or if I can recreate it, or if, whether or not it was completely... You like, can imagine off. it. <laughs> we, we, no, no. Well, that was the intent, was... was the idea was we put it in deliberately, one in a million chant above a certain altitude flying a specific direction. The give idea my, is... Give my notebook out, I think. <laughs> that we, we, knew, we knew that given the number of potential people playing the game, a one in a million chant should have one, maybe two people in the initial couple of months find it. And we like keeping our fingers crossed that someone did and... One week in the Mega Power magazine, the letters, someone writes in and says, This weird thing happened to me when I was playing Jet Strike. And the Mega Power guy said, No, that's bullshit. There's no, there's, that can't happen. You know, that's silly. Don't be, don't be silly. So, of course, we get to write in and we get to tell them and get another load of column inches. So we end up with two extra bits in Amiga Power on the basis nice. of this Easter egg. You know, because we said, Yeah, actually, it's true. It's just very, very rare. And that was exactly what it was designed for. And, and yeah, it's, if you're above a certain altitude, and it's quite a high altitude as well, you've got to be flying at, flying straight and level, um, one in a million chance any given tick. It's not like per frame or anything, but there's a, you, you should, if you do it a lot, you will get it. And all you need to do is literally just fly around at high altitude until your fuel runs out and land again, you know, kind of thing, keep refueling. And this alien will come down, accidentally knock your plane out of the sky, you'll eject, you know, and, and uh, say, ever so sorry, you know, all, all my flight. Here, have a go of my plane uh, for a while. And you get to fly the alien superfighter. Yeah. And if you look on the, the list of aircraft, when you've got the aircraft selector, there is one missing normally, and that's specifically for the alien superfighter. Oh, can, it be, can it be unlocked then as part of the game, or is it essentially no, that's, was, that's the was only just put there as a... <gasps> It, oh. <laughs> what a fantastic a re-release of it with that get with that uh, with that plane available that would be so good well the, the crazy thing is but since we did jet strike a lot of legal stuff started happening with people doing um aircraft games and stuff like that and car games as well where the manufacturers including the guys who built world war ii aircraft started suing people over the likenesses of their rights so you had, I think Grumman were actually suing people over some of the World War Two stuff, like the Hellcat and stuff like that. And it, it's like, it, it used proper plane names, didn't it? F-14, SU-27, A-10, yeah. Yeah, Adam and I are absolute plane fans. We were absolute aircraft fans. I, had, I was uh, uh, running the Amos Club at the time, and one of the people, one of the people who uh, was calling in for programming help was a guy from British Aerospace 
who helped me get, get a bit of extra information on, I think, on, on a couple of the uh, air-to-air missiles we were using. <laughs> so so um, there was all sorts of, I mean, one of the freakiest bits was we, we um, I helped these guys who were working on some network software and they were a college. Uh, I said, that's, you know, that's cool. We're, we're sort of helping over the phone. And he says, oh, do you want to pop in for, to, to visit us? Uh, I said, yeah, sure, you know. And I, I knew what was coming. It was every now and again I'd get someone would be getting technical help from me and every now and again be like, we'll see if we can headhunt him, you know, get, get him to come and work for us. I really didn't want to be working for someone else at the time, but it was a good day out. So Adam and I drove down to this, this place and it's a manor house. And we drive in through the gates and there's all these blokes walking around in military uniforms, which are like, yeah, that's flight suits. This is this is a something to do with uh, military aviation. So this is interesting already. And we go in and basically the guys are an air traffic control training school for military use. And pretty much every every country apart from the UK and the US have people there being trained in how to control aircraft around, flying around with bombs and everything on the wings, get them to target, get you know, drop bombs on them, get them back, and all this kind of stuff. And they, we were helping them sort their network code for teaching air traffic controllers on Amigas, <laughs> and uh, and it was it was a very interesting day out. Yeah, and it, it, it's like you know, I'm there writing. I think uh, a CD32 gamer called it the most Boise video game ever, with with song a song in it called "Drop the Bomb" and everything. And people who are te- people who are commanding people with nuclear bombs on their wings going around are being taught by software I help write. <laughs> if, if that doesn't make you worry, nothing will. <laughs> as long as there's no aliens come down and knock them down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as we're talking about internet in specifically i didn't get internet quite late on it was just in the sort of 56k modem range that's when i got into the internet business and let's just go around everybody bear in mind let's keep it clean what we first did when we got on the internet and for me i think the best use i ever got out of it was i discovered that there was a thing called emulation and I could play a Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis game on my 486 PC, which was quite mind-blowing. They could even do that. But actually, the most important usage for me was I could download updated drivers because, you know, without the internet, you'd wait for the magazine disc and hope they included an up-to-date driver for your graphics card, your sound card, and whatever else. But being able to go online and get the very latest one was a bit of a wonderful thing. It's set for... Some of them could be rather large. So by the time you'd waited two hours and then it would customarily cut you off at that point, you might not have had the whole file. So then you'd have to download another file, which would then be able to resume from where you last went off. And I believe that application went through some problems because that could have got viruses or something. There was something weird about it at the time. I can't remember what exactly it was. Or they started charging for it or whatever it was. But it was definitely drivers that made the biggest difference for me because that generally would make your PC that much faster by having some latest drivers on it. Now, Martin, yes. the internet, what was the the first big use for you where you got like a thrill out of it, other than blocking any grandmothers? <laughs> I won internet for life where it didn't pan out. But um, there was a company called Freedom to Surf. And I think my dad entered or I entered and we won supposedly free internet for life. They went bankrupt after about two years. I can't um, imagine why. How many people wonder won? why? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I had like a reel and I'd reel it up the stairs and um, plugged into the hallway phone. And as you said, if somebody rang it and cut off, if my mum wanted to make a call, I had to, to stop the download I was doing. I think I was um, using mine quite a lot for... Um, it was like an abandoned website, Home of the Underdogs or something like that. There were a lot of games that um, I read about that weren't for... Games used to disappear. It's a little bit better now. You can go on good old games and kind of find a game that was before your time. And legally, hopefully some of the money will go to the devs. But like 
so I had Monkey Island 3, but had never played Monkey Island 1 and 2, but you could access them on Home of the Underdogs. Obviously, I know now that that wasn't okay, um, but when you're like 9 or something like that, you kind of think it's okay because it's not available for sale. But a lot of them would have copy protection on anyway, so it wouldn't quite work, or the download would fail and stuff like that. But there are a lot of games that I'm a fan of now and have bought copies of remasters and things that I first found through home of the underdogs so that's what i um, used to go on quite a lot makes sense i mean one of the sites i used i can't remember the name of it but there was a big push on copy protection particularly on cd games for pc and some of it was even if you had the official copy would show errors which was really Mm. annoying i brought the thing why are you showing me an error it's absolutely fine so you'd actually end up getting one of the no cd key file replacements for the executable or something like that and you'd have to run that instead even though you'd got the legitimate copy it was a bit silly but anyway Aaron, how about you what was your first internet excitement clean internet or online <laughs> oh um, either either or two two pre-internet the first first usage i got of it was when i was first doing O-level computer studies in 1981, I think it was, or something like that. We had a couple of Commodore PETs, which were brilliant. They were, I loved those. And we had this terminal link to Farmer Tech. Uh, to Farmer Tech and it was like proper 300-board acoustic dial-up modem, you know, with the phone puts into the acoustic coupler and everything. And it was like, wow, you know, this is our first go at using it. And you have to log, you basically have to uh, dial it up, log in, and it'll do, please enter your login, and you do your login, and then you do your actual coding, and it sends it over to Farmer Tech, and the, the mainframe at that end processes it and runs your program. And um, it was, like, mind-blowing. Immediately, my mind's blown, and I noticed I have this clear screen command as part of the ones in the version of BASIC it had, and I thought, so what happens if you make a program that, puts up a login that looks like the login for the main login and then clears the screen and does it again and just keeps doing it. What it does is it really, really annoys your teacher (laughs) because, of course, sir, I can't log in. (laughs) Let me try my login. What's going? And he just, it it took him about 10 minutes, I think, to work out what was going on. And it's like, (laughs) so... Yeah, early days. And then first internet usage was about 90, must be about 95 or something like that. It was quite late into it. But the first real go of stuff was was playing MUDs, playing a classic um, uh, online MUD, which was like, wow, this is fun. You know, uh, big D&D nuts. So anything in terms of adventure games and stuff was like, yeah, I want to have a go at this. So classic text-based MUD, in I go. You know, it was great fun. And, yeah, the things like the, the download issues on, on, on of anything on um, dial-up was like, horrific. But there was, there was a really good one called Hotline. Uh, I don't know if anyone ever got to use Hotline, which was a bit of a – about two or three years in the late 90s, it was massive. And it was a, an application you could run. It was like a combination of chat room and download. It's like a, like a really modernized BBS. And you could you could reskin it and everything, you know. You could do all sorts of really cool sort of stuff, and it worked really really well because one of the things it did have is you could resume downloads on it. So if your download was interrupted, it could continue from where whatever last data it it, uh, it got to. So um, yeah, you know, even if you had very low data speeds, it was it was great for that. Yeah, one of my favourite downloads would have to be Winamp, which deserves a podcast all on its own, I think. But uh, yeah. Rather than whipping the llama's ass, um, Carl, what did, how, how <laughs> if anyone knows the context, that's a Winamp soundbite. Just trust me on that, okay? Carl, internet first usage, what was the best highlights for you? So my, my first usage was actually at the National History Museum in London on the top floor. It was kind of this thing. They were all, we went there as a, um, on like a school, school trip. And we all walked and, and kind of filed in line to um, to have a go on the internet. And it was this crazy kind of like 
faux futuristic kind of thing that they did with dark lights and like neon and bright colors and things like that and we're all ushered in to have our go at searching on the internet and i say when you bring in kind of teenage boys that are all together there's only one thing that gets searched for <laughs> so yes uh, quite a few of us were ushered away quite quickly because you can imagine what's uh, what popped up on the screen but yeah after that it was quite a while i mean i was i was i was relatively kind of old i was in college when we first got and it was uh i don't know if ever you guys got free serve yeah that was my first so yep yep so and then we had a shared account and I, I remember specifically remembering all of the account details to jump on it and that was i think when it was if you got a, a specific phone contract you could be on for a penny a minute i think mm. was the was the thing but the, so i wasn't at that point, I'd already kind of let go of a lot of my Amiga roots. That was kind of all gone, and I was heavily into kind of um, PlayStation. So, un- unfortunately, my my earliest Amiga experiences was um, obtaining music, which was a bit naughty. I did buy a lot of music, but the thing is, as a as a young man um, of limited means, it was it was quite prolific. It was kind of like the new like game copy kind of era that and because obviously your download speeds were so was so small anyway it meant that you could get a track in i don't know five minutes and i say especially as like mp3s and things like that it started to become and obviously like winamp and things it was crazy and as i say it was it was obviously a lot of people did kind of like the um aol chat rooms and a lot i did a lot of irc as well but yeah unfortunately it was it was a lot of a lot of music and, and not a lot else to be honest with you so but the bit rates of those mp3s could be pretty terrible indeed mm, yes, even when yeah. you had downloaded but, it and my 486 pc couldn't even play them yeah. back without stuttering yeah. <laughs> so yeah. i've got a pentium that it was actually viable but again it was like one of one of the things was is the way the fact that when people started uh illegally or whatever downloading mp3s and the way they downloaded and what they downloaded very heavily influenced what what uh, Apple did with iTunes, because all the all the record companies, the deal from them was if we're going to do a legal way of downloading albums, it has to be you buy the full album. That's it, you know, and it has to be only the current ones. We don't want to sell any back catalogue or anything like that. And Apple went to them and said, "Look, people aren't downloading that. They're downloading their favourite tracks." They're downloading these old tracks that you don't sell anymore. You know, they're downloading all these things that they want, and they don't download albums because they're not interested. In, they're, they're just interested in these songs. So we're selling them as songs, and if you don't, basically, if you don't do a deal with us, you're just going to lose the whole thing. And fortunately, the record companies did do a deal, and and it it kind of escalated from there, basically. Yeah. And they so did a thing after that as well. <laughs> yeah, they did a thing yeah. after that, which was pretty clever, where I think we called iTunes Match or something like that, where mm. it would look at your existing music collection. So if you were a person who had very low bit MP3s, you'd run it for iTunes Match, and then it would give you the higher quality Apple version of that. Yeah. And it yeah. would then legitimize that track. It, it was and very you'd cunning. pay like a subscription to be using iTunes Match. So yeah. the record companies kind of got whatever naughty deeds you had in the past, had some sort of remuneration for that, and you got a much higher quality file in return well, for it. It was it was very, very, very cunning that because of course in the original days of iTunes, it was a it's a purchase system because the record companies didn't want a subscription system. They wanted you to buy stuff so they could sell you it again later. Because I mean, there were albums I bought on iTunes that I already had on C D and vinyl. You know, and and basically, if they'd been on on um, on the, the what's it the, the the wax drums, I'd probably have had those too. <laughs> and that's know, definitely so before so BBS. Yeah, before, <laughs> actually before my time, really seventy eight, maybe. But you know, um, so so they wanted that, and and Apple weren't interested in subscription because the practicalities of it at the time were. It was financially not great, which is why Zoom failed, because Zoom was meant to be subscription-based, and no one wanted to pay per month for a few songs that you might listen to that 
you're just paying out for them over and over again, you know. So it didn't make sense for people back then. But gradually, as the catalogue got bigger and bigger and bigger, it, it was like, well, Apple's like, well, we're obviously never going to keep selling people tracks because the record industry aren't pumping out stuff you're going to constantly want to buy. So subscription does make sense. But how do we persuade people to go to subscription? iTunes Mac. If you subscribe to iTunes, which is now iTunes Plus, and do the subscription service, then we will legitimize all your tracks. You know, and they become... And they, they did that, and everything... You, everyone put this stuff up. And it also gave them a lot of useful information on what do people actually have in their libraries, and what ones should we be getting new copies of, for instance. You know, That's should right. we be pushing? So there's all this kind of stuff going on, which is brilliant. And then gradually, they, they eventually got rid of iTunes Match a couple of years ago, because it got to the point where everybody was now on iTunes Plus and subscribing and had all the music they wanted at their fingertips. So, and, and everyone was like, uh, you know, trained now to, that subscription is okay. So it's kind of a weird, weird scenario. It's, it's a strange thing because I was actually potentially swapping my uh, country for my iTunes account, uh, having moved from UK to Spain it started to become more practical for me to actually switch countries so I can actually pay for things. But the problem there is to do that, you have to switch off all your subscriptions and wait for them to end. But you have to back up all the content you've purchased because it may or may not be available in the country you go to because all the record companies licensing. and the film companies have all their silly licensing stuff. Whereas the actual system iTunes and, and, and um, Apple Movies and stuff doesn't care about that, but the people licensing them content to them do. So I could, for instance, have all these movies and everything I've bought in the UK in my library, which I can re-download at any time I want um, as, as a UK user. But if I switch to Spain, I can't necessarily re-download them because they might not be licensed for, for Spain. So I have to download them while I've got them and make a an actual backup copy, I can still use them on, on iTunes and, and, and um, Apple movies as long as I have a physical copy on my drive. So they're still licensed to me because I bought them, but I just can't download a new copy, which is a bit of a weird scenario. <laughs> Very. Now, one thing I have to quickly discuss is with Martin. Uh, we have a certain fondness for Revolution Software, and there's a certain title I'm sure we're both looking forward to trying out very much, and that's Broken Sword Reforged, which is basically Broken Sword 1. Uh, we won't say remastered, we'll say... We'll probably stick with Reforged, but what this basically means is those original assets have gone up to a beautiful 4K, and I'm sure there's going to be other delightful additions too. But certainly point-and-click adventures, Broken Sword 1 is right up there for me. It's probably just number two, slightly, ever so slightly. Only because I played it probably first. Sam the Source was my number one. But Broken Sword is like clipping its heels at a very close number two. That was a magical game. I mean, how do you feel about it, Martin? About the about the reforge? Yeah, I feel really yeah, good. Yeah. I, I've got to be careful what I say because I know a little bit more than oh, oh dear. <laughs> has been re has been revealed. But yeah, they've they've got a Kickstarter in the works, haven't they, for a physical edition? They have indeed. And I think that they've they did a trailer last year that kind of showed Broken Sword Six and um, Broken Sword One reforged. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think I'm excited at the moment because. I'm currently playing the um, the two Meta trilogy that's just been released, where you can switch between the old and the new. Um, I've been sent a review copy for that, and um, that, I think that's the way these these things should go. I think remakes can sometimes be really disappoint people. I think if you take the bones of the original game and you can s s switch with the touch of a button, it's the best of both worlds. Because if you don't like the way the new thing is being redrawn, or you know, a lot of people weren't particularly happy about the way. Um, Monkey Island was was remastered, but if you didn't, you could press the button and, and go back to the way it was. Um, but I think they're getting a bit more sophisticated now with um, with the use of AI internally. I really don't like um, a lot of things about AI, but I think if it's just used on the original assets that you own anyway, and then you touch them up by hand, um, which I think is what they've done with the Tomb Raider and what they're doing with Broken Sword. I think that's a great use of AI because yeah. 
the reasons these pro the reason these projects haven't happened in the past is because um, that genre has become niche and 4K. You know, it's not pixel art anymore. That's an expensive thing to do, right? That's almost with Broken Sword. That's like an animated film, um, and you know even Disney don't make animated films anymore. They're very expensive and there aren't that many traditionally trained animators anymore. But if you can take those original games and, and, you know, use technology to bring them up to date, it's fantastic. It's the reason Broken Sword hasn't been on PlayStation 5 and stuff like that, because somebody like me would quite happily play it with the original graphics, very low resolution. Um, But the majority of people won't. It's a great way to get, people to hopefully discover who didn't play it at the time and it's a great way for people like me to play it on a modern system and and choose whether they want to play it the new look or the old look so yeah as i said i I know i know a few things that i can't say but i'm really excited for it i think it looks like it's on track to be a really good re-release of that game because they did the director's cut didn't they for Wii i think and a few other platforms and it's what i was saying before as soon as you do that I think when I was doing Tony's book, one of the things that Ubisoft wanted um, or Nintendo is, you know, it can't just be the original game. It's got to have extra stuff in. And then you've got all these Wii type puzzles, which were quite nice at the time, but it's not the original game. I think the reason this Reforged will be good is it's that exact game that you got in 1996, but at the click of a button, it looks like a 2024 game. I think that's really exciting and hopefully will please newcomers and, and old fans as well. So, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. And the key <laughs> bit you said there was they're using AI, but it's a tool. Mm. And then they're getting actual artists to touch it up. And I think we were talking about this uh, with Tony that the hands in particular, AI is pretty rubbish with the finer yeah. detail. <laughs> it will get you so far. But particularly with fingers, it really struggles. And I experimented uh, with that image generation with AI probably like six months ago. And if there was anything it was going to get wrong, it was eyes because it looked like really weird. And the fingers would be bent and crooked and or not there or half missing. Give me five AI. (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. I mean, for anyone who's seen the, the video examples, is it Sora? That is now you can put in some text uh, if you're lucky enough to be part of that beta program and be able to generate a certain length of video. And it's one, very impressive, but two, the obvious AI uh, things where it's not quite working right that there's a cat and there's a woman, and this cat wants to wake up this woman, and a paw comes out from the cat. But then another paw comes out from the cat, overlaps the existing <laughs> paw, and then there's another paw. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. But the fact it even gets that far is pretty mind-blowing. But it's certainly not all the way there yet. It could do, but it's a tool. It, yeah. It's a very important tool. And I use AI. Look, I'm, I've been a copywriter for many years, and if there was anyone who's going to be upset, just like artists, it's copywriters because there's people building websites just throwing AI copy on there and saying, hey, I'm going to get Google ads on there and start making some money. (laughs) But, you know, I use it, but it's a tool. It's not writing the thing for me, but if I want to check something, I can check with AI, and that will get me close enough to then run an actual proper search just make sure AI is not hallucinating, which is also a thing. But then you get something, you know, it's, it's a tool. I would never let Ooh. it write an article, that's for sure. But that, it's, it is a useful tool. That's the important distinction, though, isn't it? Because, as I said, I understand why people don't like AI. And similar to you in my job, I'm a writer and editor, and I, I understand the fear of it. I, I certainly don't think an AI piece of content is as good as a piece of content that I've written. Um it's bland yeah i just that worries me a lot because people will go why hire a writer to write the text for my website because i can just get chat gtp to do it in 10 seconds and it's good enough um so i don't like that side of it but i think the important distinction there and i think charles from revolution has kind of clarified it a bit i think they teamed up with a university in york or something like that they've made their own tool and it's not pulling the way AI works. A lot of the time is it'll pull other people's work, or it's learned from other people's work. Um, so it's kind of like stealing things. Mm. Uh, 
but if if all Revolution are doing is feeding their original artwork in, um, they're not stealing from anyone. They're just they're almost um, taking a job that in the past was quite monotonous because of those frames of animation. Somebody would have to go frame by frame and you know do the colors, correct things. If the AI can take your originals all that painstaking work they did in 1996 and get it 80% of the way there and then the animators who are there now just do the 20% I, I don't see a problem with that at all I think it, um, it means it exists doesn't it if it was if the AI wasn't used they probably wouldn't be doing it because it'd take them 10-15 years to do it in 4k so mm. um, it's an important distinction though I think a lot of people just see AI and think the worst mm. Um it's the same with the Tomb Raider games. You know that that AI is purely being used um, on the original assets. It's not taken. It's not taken an Egyptian hieroglyph and then looking through all of those type of examples online and then stealing it. It's just taking that original, very low res texture and and making a guess what it would look like, and then they have to go in and fix it. Yeah, there's definitely. I mean, been... yeah, the, the, yeah. I mean, the thing is, really, most AI that you know. Despite the term you know, being, it's not artificial intelligence as such. It's just, it's just very clever copy paste. You know, it's trained copy paste to copy and paste from whatever it's been trained on. Which, as you say, if you train it on your own stuff to take the monotony out, it's the same as your your artist learning to copy and paste stuff. So it's a useful tool. If it's copying and pasting from everybody else's stuff without actually, it doesn't understand what it's copying and pasting is the problem. Which is why you get, you know, people with eight fingers and, you know, puppies all spawning out of a spot where it's supposed to be two puppies playing kind of thing and so on. It, because it doesn't understand the concept of them. It only understands that it, it's seen pictures like this and seen videos like this and seen text like this. So it's quite happy to copy and paste it, which is also why it, it gets so bland in text, for instance. Well, a great example of... So, so Broken Sword, the original animations on, like, the... Um the sprites on George and, and the, the characters, they were 12 frames a second, which sounds really, really low nowadays, but because of the low-res nature of the game and stuff, it, it, it looks very smooth. Um, a lot of animation use that trick. I think they call it on the twos, is it? Yeah, but if you imagine now with the 4K one, they're going to want that 60 frames a second, right? That's what everyone goes on about, we want 60 yeah. frames a second. Imagine how much extra work that is, because not only have they got to up-res the frames that exist, they've now got to you know, have in-between screens of animation. As I said, if you can get the AI to take the first and second frame and put extra frames in between, and then you just go in and tidy up the hands and stuff like that, I, I think that's a great use of the technology. Yeah, you know, no, absolutely. I mean, I was saying, when you said when you said they're upping it to four K, from what I remember, uh, from what Tony wrote in the book about the development on the on the first one, and, and especially the resolution then, and the difficulties of going from that to the second one with the engine and so on, it's actually at a point where if you're going four K sixty frames a second, it would be cheaper to do a live action version of the game and actually film actors to do all the scenes than it would be to animate it. If you're doing it fully animated, yeah, hand animated. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that the reason that Broken Sword Six, for example, is kind of like a um, 2D backgrounds but with 3D characters and stuff is just because of the expense of doing that kind of stuff nowadays. Like everybody loves Curse of Monkey Island, everybody loves Broken Sword. These like very traditional um, looking animated, almost Saturday morning cartoon aesthetic. Um, but you could get away with that on a lower resolution, and, and CRTs were really good. It didn't matter what the resolution was; it would just display it beautifully. Um, but it, but that, in many ways, the, the screens we're using now are a lot better. But they're not particularly kind to those older games. They show the, the seams. So yeah, it's it. What Tony was saying in the book there was right. It, I don't think those type of games would get made nowadays because they'd need the budget of like a Call of Duty or something and the audience isn't there. It would almost be made like making a, a Disney animated feature film. So yeah, I actually think it's pretty exciting because it's kind of releasing what was in 1996 on today's technology. I, I don't think it would be able to be done though unless you had the original game to as a starting point. I, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see animated adventure games of that quality again there's very very good animated 2d adventure games still but they're, they're not using 
it's not every individual frame is hand-drawn in that traditional way. I just don't think that that's feasible anymore. No, it's 3D um, characters mostly, isn't it? Yeah, even Broken yeah. Sword 5, I think, is kind of 3D characters, but given like a kind of filter to make them look... Um, you know, to make them look 2D. Exactly. Um, and it looks very, very nice. Um, but I think Reforged is going to be, um, you know, a blast from the past. It's going to be pretty special. Absolutely. And hopefully also bring Broken Sword to a whole new audience. Uh, yeah. Be intrigued what happens. And I hope it inspires also a Broken Sword to Reforged because that would be lovely as well. Yeah. But you mentioned Tomb Raider Remastered. So I also got that. Literally the date was released. Yeah. So I had Tomb Raider 1 on for my sins the sega saturn which was notoriously the slower version to have but that i had a sega saturn i didn't have a playstation i made my choice i got a saturn (laughs) but the beauty about this remaster is this isn't the sort of the second reboot of tomb raider it's certainly not the third reboot of tomb raider it is very much those first few tomb raider games so what we will consider the limitations of the technology back in the day are most certainly the limitations of the technology still today. It is Tomb Raider at, if you excuse the pun, at the core, core design fact. So that would mean the grid system of how Lara goes from block to block to jump, and if she's running up to the edge of a block to jump and grab the block that's a few away, that all remains. Unusually, I think they've got this modern control system, which you can turn on, and the original, I think it's called the tank controls. If you put the modern ones on, it doesn't feel right. And it's harder to gauge the jumps. And I've actually gone back to the original tank control. So I can walk up to the edge, hop backwards, and then do the running jump and the grab to get to the... And that's just the way it works. It's based on this square grid system. That's the way it was designed from day one, those first few games. That's how it worked. So if you don't like that back then... Nothing's changed, folks. It's exactly like that today. But that's what the game was designed for. That's how the levels were created. That's how it's all mapped out. It was just, that's the way it's meant to work. So they've worked around that and they've increased the quality of the textures enormously. So if they have used AI, there's definite manual intervention because the detail on it is fantastic and still remains incredibly faithful. So those inc- those very low resolution textures we would have had. I mean, you think Saturn PlayStation One era of texture quality? It wasn't much of a texture. It was just lots of bigger squares, and if anything, it made pixel art look very high res because it looked very low resolution. But it does look beautiful in its new higher resolution textures. Um, the Lara Croft character model is, I would say inspired by the posters that would have been around at that time, like the box art and the thing. And it, she looks great. Not like today's Lara, because that looks too sort of realistic. That looks This one looks more of the time as she would have been shown in some of the FMV later ones and some of the posters. Perfect choice. The creatures keep a lot of the shape. I think that's mainly probably for things like hit detection. And because you can switch, as Martin said in other games, where you can go from the modern, press a button and you're straight back into how it similarly to what it would have been in what they call the classic mode although you get some nice widescreen 4k resolution but it's it's as close to classic as you can get with that a lot of the sort of limitations of what you would have had back then like four by three and things like that but it's locked to 30 frames per second in classic which is interesting and you can have 60 uh, more on the pc frames per second if you're going to the modern. Um, so I'm having a lot of fun with it, but it's very much that core technology of Tomb Raider, so don't expect anything different there. I mean, what are your thoughts on it, Martin? You've also played it a bit by now as well. Yeah, I like it. I think um, the modern controls, like you said, a couple of years ago I interviewed the original voice actor for Lara Croft, um, Shelley Blonde. Um, and and before I did the interview, I decided I'm going to sit down and, and get my PS1 out and I'm going to complete Tomb Raider 1 because when I was a kid, um, I loved those games, but I'd, I'd, my experience of them would be the first few levels, hours and hours of the first few levels. Oh, I um, bet you love the crystals then. Well, yeah, so Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider on PC, I think you could save anywhere, but the yep. original Tomb Raider on PS1 was certain points in the level, and I completed it. Um, I think just 
it's those controls. The controls are actually very um, precise. So if you if you go to the edge of a block, tap back, and she takes a step back, and then you press forward and hold jump, she will make the jump. It's not like um, Uncharted and stuff now where you make a jump, and even if you mess it up, it kind of magnetizes you to the to where you're supposed to be going. So I can see why that would might be frustrating for people, but once once you kind of um, learn the, the learn the boat, the science of it almost, um, if even if a jump looks too far away, if you do the exact thing you need to do, you will make that jump, and it it makes the levels a puzzle. The traversal is quite slow, but it's because you're looking where you want to go, and um, okay, that's three blocks, so I need to do this, this, and this, and then there's traps and things like that. Tomb Raider 2 complicated a bit because then um, they throw lots of enemies in and the shooting isn't that good. I think that's where the modern controls are actually quite useful for the combat because you can run around enemies. It's kind of like analog control and you can run around them. You, you can use the modern controls and still um, do the jump back and things, but I think you have to draw the guns out and then it kind of almost... F- it puts it back into that block system, but I turned the modern controls off. I've I've got too much of the um, the tank controls ingrained in me. Yeah, that I that I'm pretty good at it. I can run around the levels, and it's quite smooth to me. But as you said, I think if those games were something you wrestled with in the past, it's not like this is a modern version. It's still very much those old games, with just with a new look of paint. Yeah, if you um, want a modern version of the original Tomb Raider, you'd want. Tomb Raider Anniversary, which came out quite a few years ago, which will give yeah, you that. Exactly. But I mean, the, the thing to remember is, and it, it goes back to a lot of the stuff that Tony has introduced me to, because a lot of the, the event that we went to, James, was obviously um, the games before my time. But a lot of games used to be just one or two people in a, in a bedroom or, or at a dining table making a game. And Tomb Raider wasn't that far off that really. I think it was six or seven people in in core design in like this tiny old house, um, and you know they you you finish Tomb Raider one and the credits come up and it's a single screen and it's just a list of six names or whatever. And I, and I think Gaiman's lost that a little bit. So yeah, I think it's quite nice that that stuff like this is coming back and it must be nice for those original developers. Um, you know, Tomb Raider games are still getting made and it's almost like. A lot of people who like Tomb Raider now may have not been, um, may have not caught those original games because it was before they were born. So yeah, I think it's a great it's a great proposition. Twenty quid for three of those original games, and they look nicer on your telly and stuff now. But yeah, if if you can't if you can't switch into the mindset of playing a, a tank control game in 1996, it was a big deal, wasn't it? Playing a 3D third person running around those levels. Um, I've still got a bit of awe for that because I remember it when I was a kid. My first PC game was Tomb Raider 2 and sliding down and fighting the Tigers and things. It was really exciting. It may actually be too difficult and too tame almost for modern gamers, but I hope not. I'd, I'd kind of like to think that people can still appreciate those things because, as I said, it, was, it wasn't it was a big studio with hundreds and hundreds of people which, which lost a bit of the soul of it. It's six people like just sitting there trying to do something cool. Yeah. The combat of Tomb Raider is not its strength because you basically it locks on to the enemy as soon as you start firing and it's close enough. Yeah, you just have and to, you, f- and you just keep basically you jump yeah. around like a lunatic. Now, if you've played Call of Duty, I'm not talking about the little hop action you do. I mean, she literally jumps like a gymnast elegantly yeah. to the left and then a big jump to the right and then backwards. And all that time, she's still shooting perfectly on target. Bless. I mean, that's skill <laughs> right there. Jane, my wife, gets really annoyed because she'll say, oh, you killed all the enemies, and I'll be like, yeah, I'm going to reload. And she's like, why? And I'm like, I lost a bit too much health. Like, I can do that better. <laughs> and she's like, we use a health pack, and I'm like, I don't want to use a health I don't want to use yeah. a health pack. I can You'll need it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, I can do that yeah. better. I know I can do I mean, better. the thing is, 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 is it's, not, it's probably not the controls and the gameplay that would horrify people nowadays. It's the fact that you're running around wiping out endangered species. Yeah, yeah that will... Well, it's interesting because Crystal Dynamics didn't make it who, or they're involved, sorry, but the team that made it is actually a combination of the people who did the Mac versions back in the day. And then um, I think the main guy who's been leading it is actually a guy who did Open Lara, it's called, where he got he got it running on a load of different systems with like enhancements and multiplayer and stuff. So it is fans of the game who've been involved, and I think you can tell. But yeah, it's just... <sighs> 
it's a strange one really because I, I do think you're right. I, I think a lot of people will look at that game now and say it's insensitive or it's kind of it doesn't really slot in with the way we think about things now. Um, but Crystal Dynamics did a weird thing where the first time you run the game, it has a message that kind of says, you know, it doesn't allow. It's of its time. And it's yeah. Time. I mean, but it's the, like, the, it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, I, I have um, a fairly extensive collision, uh, uh, collection now of Biggles books. I'm a, a big, I'm an, I'm an aviation nut. So obviously, I'm going to be reading Biggles and stuff as a kid. And um, a lot of the, the reprints of Biggles books have a disclaimer at the start of there are there is some language in this book which is of its time, like Huns and all this kind of thing, you know, which was how things were, you know, were back then. It, there's nothing inherently racist or anything in the Biggles books, fortunately. It's not like Noddy or anything, but it, it but it is, there are words that if you're like, oh, well, you know, but that, you know, it's it, 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 just enough for it to need a disclaimer. And it's the same with Lara. I mean, you know, yes, things were different back back then, especially in, in, in the games scene. You know, it, were, it was very, it was a very misogynistic environment back then. You know, there, there was um, a lot more stuff that you would not even consider nowadays um, to be being, being written and, and um, all, you know, all sorts of, Stuff that's like nowadays, you'd be like, "There's no way, no way that would ever be a, a, a thing." Yeah, exactly. They yeah. should they should use disclaimers more though, because it really annoys me when like the Ian Fleming estate have just reprinted all the Bond books and they're taking language out. The old Dark yeah. books doing the same. I think it's the wrong approach. I think it's better to have the disclaimer at the front and then see it as it was at the time, and then you can go. That, that that wasn't right i think just removing it or removing the language um first of all i just disagree with it i think that it has to appear as the author wrote it and yeah. then i think this claim is a great way to have a to make the reader think about it or the gamer think about it you know when i'm in tomb raider shooting the tigers because the graphics are what they are even with the new look of paint it's not like a modern game so i don't feel too bad about it because they're obviously computer tigers um but you know I, I don't think in the modern games they have you doing that, or I think if you're killing animals like the wolves and things, it's because they're attacking you, or if you're killing a deer, it's because you need to eat, and I'm all for that, um, but I'm glad that they didn't go into those original games and, and um, remove stuff. I think the disclaimer is a better way a better way to do yeah, it. Yeah, it makes it, makes, it makes it a teaching experience. It, it, yeah, you know, exactly. Once you've got this disclaimer, it's something to, to have a conversation about with people and, and actually learn why and, and why things changed. Yeah, I've I never think... had the des- I mean, big disclaimer here. I've never had the desire since playing Tomb Raider in all these years to go into a tomb to kill a tiger or anything like that. I've been, I've, I've tried the Lara jump. I've run into a few walls. Trust me, it hurts. So don't copy what you see on games, folks. It's just <laughs> yeah. a game. I have a feeling that that disclaimer is more for. I'm trying to. Th- I haven't played Tomb Raider um, two and three for a long time, but I'm pretty sure some of the countries is like. There's yetis in one, and then there's tribes people in another. I yeah. think it'll be for that kind of stuff. It's kind of like a very, it's the same problem probably that um, Tintin will have, where like what what Western people thought of other pl- well, parts of the world. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is with Tintin, there are Tintin books that are not published because they were blatantly racist because the yeah. guy was, you know, pretty bad basically. Likewise, Noddy has been heavily revised because there's some you know some of the stuff in Noddy is like whoa you know yeah I think as well there's a lot of these games are part of like like we remember them and they're part of our history um and I say I know there's been quite a big thing where essentially a lot of history is trying to to be kind of not erased but forgotten about and I think this is one of the things that a lot of people kind of especially like my kind of age now we we've got disposable income we want to go back back to that history and kind of and to see it changed kind of for modern times that kind of that that's not a nostalgic look of what I experienced back in the day I mean it's not to say it's it's right as a modern day game but it's not it, it, it it's it's not as fitting and I say to 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 systematically go back and change things just for the sake of not offending somebody. As I say, you can't rewrite it. It was it was there, it's been there, and you can't change it. 
And it so, often sticks yeah. out like a sore from when it yeah, does yeah. happen. You go, Whoa, I forgot about yeah. that. Oh dear. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely have the time. And you've, the, you guys have got it absolutely spot on. That discussion, you know, sometimes hiding things away. Okay, that's history gone. It's sometimes it's important also to understand the context of it at the time, how opinions have changed, and that discussion, particularly if you're, you know, a younger person. And to have a parent or teacher have that discussion, that is a valuable thing to have. Mm. I mean, it's also why when you're doing, for instance, libraries of retro games, you don't filter it to just the good ones. You've got to have the worst, the the bad, the terrible games on there as well. Because people don't want to go, oh, oh, retro games are wonderful. Because I went to this library of retro games and all, all this wonderfully managed. Every single game on there was perfectly playable was really fun etc no no you've got to have the federation of free traders and all the other sort of terrible games on there as well that will just like you just play and go i sh- if, if i paid money for this i would be really really cross now <laughs> yeah i think that's yeah. one of the reasons i don't like a lot of the curated um systems um like evercade and things like that because i say it's it's if you've only got the good stuff you don't appreciate well, no. So if you've if you've got no bad stuff, you don't appreciate like the there are some real, real gems, and I say especially like in my experience with the with the Amiga, there was some absolute trash. And I say mm. especially considering that it was a sixteen bit computer, a lot of the the, the kind of the low value ports that came out um, of that era were, were terrible. I mean, you had things that would look would look better on the NES. So yeah, just kind of it's yeah. I say it, it's difficult when you when you go back you, you like quite rightly you you don't want to just remember the stuff that was really good because that as that wasn't as well it doesn't that give wasn't you a part of it was it so it, no. yeah 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 plus also if you're a modern game designer going back and playing those bad games you might see an interesting mechanic that no one else has tried since but you'd also see why they haven't tried that mechanic since, you know. And, and maybe you can actually say, well, actually, no, but if you do this, maybe we've got something we can use. But but seeing what people were trying and, and some of the gameplay mechanics back then, there was a lot more variety because we were trying all sorts of wacky stuff. Because back then, fighting the controls was a valid gameplay mechanic. Nowadays, if you're not, playing, not able to understand the controls, that's kind of a, a no-no in modern game design is, is you must instinctively get the controls back then you could actually have games that were all about having to mess with the controls as you played you know and learn and constantly learn new controls and and the controls are suddenly flipped on me what's going you know and literally fighting against the, your controller uh half the time exactly that exactly that so well what can I say, gents? Fantastic discussion. We've got quite a bit there in an hour and 10 minutes or so. So thank you all for joining us, Aaron, Carl and Martin, and myself, James of the Game and Gadget Podcast. See you next time, folks. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>